This week on Miranda Warnings, we talked to Alora Mukherjee, professor of law at Columbia Law School, where she's the director of the Immigrants' Rights Clinic. In 2018, Alora traveled to the United States-Mexico border to provide legal services to asylum seekers, including families and children that were separated trying to enter the United States. What we have seen across the southern border is that there is a massive humanitarian crisis. Because of a policy called migrant protection protocols, more than 65,000 individual asylum seekers who should have been allowed to stay in the United States and pursue their claims have been turned back and tens of thousands of them are living in camps along the northern border of Mexico in a dire humanitarian crisis. We talk about what Alora witnessed at the border, including the deplorable conditions children were being kept in and efforts to reunite the over 500 children that have been separated from their parents. Alora also talks about her work on behalf of immigrant victims in a case involving forced sterilization of detainees in Georgia. Welcome, Alora. Thank you so much for having me, David. It is really great to have you. Uh, Alora is also the 2019 Ruth Stimson Award winner from the New York State Bar Association uh, because of uh, the work that she she does to uh, assist immigrants facing deportation hearings. Um, so Alora, tell us a little bit about the work you do at the uh, the the law clinic at Columbia Law School. Sure. So my daily job is to teach law students how to become lawyers. And I do that in the context of real cases in immigration cases. The first semester students are in my clinic, they learn how to do an asylum case from start to finish. So in the course of 14 weeks, they are expected to take a client from their initial client interview through a trial in immigration court, all assuming that there's no global pandemic that keeps our immigration courts shut. Thereafter, in their second, third, or fourth semester, they can continue in the Advanced Immigrants' Rights Clinic, where we take on more complex immigration-related litigation and advocacy. And our clinic does work here in the New York, New Jersey area on behalf of individual asylum seekers, individual families, but we also do work nationwide and internationally. So recently, a lot of our work has focused on a detention center located in Osceola, Georgia, where women have been subjected to, immigrant women have been subjected to non-consensual invasive gynecological procedures, literally having their reproductive organs cut up without their consent and knowledge. Um, our clinic has also done work at the U.S.-Mexico border, both on the northern side and on the southern side. And all this work keeps my students and I very busy and engaged. Yeah, well, there's a lot there, and I, w- I want to get into it. But uh, first, let me ask you, what's going on with the, in, the, in the court system now with respect to these uh, hearings during the during the pandemic, and are your students able to uh, participate in, in in court hearings during the p- pandemic? Right. As with so many things, the pandemic has made the immigration court system much more 
complicated. A number of immigration courts around the country have reopened, notwithstanding the level of coronavirus cases in the their respective regions. Here in New York, the New York Immigration Court has remained closed for almost a month. What that means for asylum seekers and other immigrants whose cases are venued in the New York Immigration Court is that their cases right now have been brought to a standstill. I'll just give you a few examples. Next month, our clinic expected to bring to trial the cases of two families who are seeking asylum. They have been waiting for years now, about five years now, to have a judge hear their asylum cases. But we just found out last week that the New York Immigration Court expects to be closed through mid-March, putting the lives of these two families again in limbo. And we have no idea when their cases will actually be heard. Yeah, so, you know, I, I understand that obviously we have the issue of the pandemic and uh, inability to have uh, live hearings. Is, is there some reason why we're not able to have, uh, you know, remote hearings for some of these individuals who uh, have their lives on hold? Great question. So just this month, the immigration courts have issued a memo suggesting that WebEx hearings may be in the works in the coming months. We are still, immigration lawyers are still awaiting concrete details about implementation, but I do expect remote hearings to start taking place at some point this year. Now, in the past, before the pandemic, you've been down to the the Mexican border to provide uh, assistance to uh, immigrants who've been detained. Um, and in some of those instances, you've brought uh, some of your uh, law students uh, with you. Tell us a little bit about the work that you did uh, at the border. Right. So our students and I have done work on both the northern and the southern side of the U.S.-Mexico border. In January of 2020, my students and I traveled to Ciudad Juarez to provide pro bono legal services to asylum seekers, including families and children who were stranded there as a result of the farcically named migrant protection protocols. Previously in January of 2019, my students and I had traveled to Tijuana to provide representation, pro bono representation to asylum seekers there who were subjected to the metering system which limits the number of asylum seekers who can come into the United States on any given day. And what I have seen on the southern side of the U.S. border is unfortunately really sad. So on my most recent trip in January 2020, I walked through refugee camps where families who should have been in the United States under international and domestic law were not allowed to do so due to immigration policies by the Trump administration. And these families were living in squalid conditions, in places without running water, at the edge of very, very dire abject poverty with housing instability and with children out of school. And what we have seen 
across the southern border on the northern side of Mexico is that there is a massive humanitarian crisis. Because of a policy called migrant protection protocols, more than 65,000 individual asylum seekers who should have been allowed to stay in the United States and pursue their claims have been turned back from the United States and tens and tens of thousands of them are living in camps along the northern border of Mexico in a dire humanitarian crisis. And that crisis has been worsening with the global pandemic, as we can all imagine. And we have, our clinic has lost clients to COVID-19 who've been living in these camps. And it's, it is a very, very unfortunate situation and one that should be remedied by the Biden administration. Yeah, we. I'd like to talk about some changes that are that are um, taking place, but I want to also talk about some of your work regarding the um, requirements that the federal government abide by minimum standards of care uh, pursuant to the Flores Settlement Agreement. Tell us a little bit about the Flores Agreement and what that requires, and at least up until recently, whether we were uh, complying with that. The 1997 Flores Agreement sets forth basic standards of care for children in federal immigration custody. In addition, the Flores Settlement Agreement requires that children be released from federal immigration custody as quickly as possible and that they be placed with a responsible caregiver, preferably a family member, preferably a parent. This is what we should all want for vulnerable children, right? That they be reunited as quickly as possible with their parents. Right. Flores Settlement Agreement requires that children be held in safe and sanitary settings during their time in federal immigration custody and that they be permitted to stay in the custody of Customs and Border Patrol for no longer than 72 hours. Now, what that means in practice is a recognition that CBP agents who are trained law enforcement officers are not trained as child welfare experts, are not trained as teachers or as social workers who should be spending prolonged periods of time with children who are extremely traumatized and vulnerable. And the Flores Settlement Agreement requires that after 70, after no more than 72 hours in CBP custody, that children be shifted into the custody of the Office of Refugee Resettlement, which has a system of shelters where children can be housed until they are released to appropriate family members. And the requirements in the Flores Settlement Agreement, specifically that 72-hour limit on how much time kids can spend in CBP custody, that's reinforced by other federal legislation, including the Trafficking Victims Protection Reauthorization Act. And so the Flores Settlement Agreement, in short, is an effort to provide appropriate care for children during the short times that they are permitted to stay in federal government custody until they are released to responsible familial caregivers. And in recent years, was the Flores Settlement Agreement uh, complied with uh, as far as uh, your involvement saw? 
No, unfortunately, in recent years, we have seen egregious violations of the Flores Settlement Agreement. So I have been given the opportunity to serve as a monitor for the Flores Settlement Agreement for a number of years. And most strikingly, in the summer of 2019, in June of 2019, a team of lawyers and I, all of whom were approved to be monitors for the Flores Settlement Agreement, went to a Customs and Border Patrol facility in Clint, Texas, And we were appalled by what we saw there. We saw children who were dirty, distressed, hungry, who had been ripped apart from their familial caregivers, their adult caregivers. They were subject to overcrowding in cages in very dirty conditions. And it was appalling. We saw children as young as two years old who had been ripped apart from their caregivers and who had no one to take care of them. We saw children without diapers. The youngest baby who I met in that facility was just four months old. And these children, hundreds of children, were held in this CBP facility, Customs and Border Patrol facility, that was designed to hold only up to 100 adults. And there were no appropriate caregivers for these children at that facility. And many of the kids had been held there significantly longer than the 72-hour limit we've just discussed. We found children who'd been detained there for weeks, some longer than a month. So now we're talking about, you said four, as young as four months, several that are, you know, uh, two years old without, uh, without their parents or, or guardians uh, how are they how are they cared for? How were they cared for? That question stays with me. It haunts me. They weren't cared for. The children... So you go to the facility, they're they're in uh these giant cages with a, a number of uh of other children and in, in these cages there's there's uh, children that have been taken away from their families or their guardians that are as young as two years old just to fend for themselves? Right. And the children who are slightly older were doing their best to take care of the children who were younger. But, for example, the two-year-old who didn't have a diaper, who peed on himself while my colleagues and I were trying to speak with an older child who was unrelated to him, but tasked with caring for him, she explained to us, they don't even give us enough diapers for these kids. And the level of neglect and cruelty that I saw in my days at Clint were unlike anything I have seen in my work representing detained immigrant children over the last 15 years. And so, you know, these detained uh, individuals uh, have no uh, government-appointed right to counsel in immigration proceedings, even for children. Uh, And so your uh, clinic, you and your clinic, uh, attempt to provide some uh, legal services uh, for for these individuals who are unrepresented. how is it that you you can uh, that you represent, for example, a young child that 
might not even speak English. Um, first of all, how you know what is it that you and your group go about doing? And secondly, if you weren't there to help them, how would they be processed through a system if they're, you know, literally just a few years old and uh, don't speak English, don't have counsel? How, how is it possible for their rights to be protected? I'll try to answer the first question first and the second question second. Right. There's a lot to unpack there. There is. We could talk for the whole day about I have all a lot of, of questions. <laughs> <laughs> In terms of how our clinic tries to offer services, like many legal services providers who work with children, we try to identify who they are, their country of origin. We try to get in touch with trusted adult caregivers, preferably family members who know their situation and why they have fled to the United States. A massive part of this work is trying to reunite children, young children, with their appropriate familial caregivers. In terms of how the system is supposed to treat these kids, as I mentioned, they're not supposed to be in CBP custody for any longer than 72 hours, and then they're transferred to the Office of Refugee Resettlement. Once they are in the custody of ORR, there should be trained social workers and others whose job it is to immediately try to reunify the child with appropriate family members who are in the... Why are they separated from the parents or guardians uh, in the first place? As many of your listeners will recall, among the most cruel policies of the Trump administration was to rip apart babies, toddlers, young children, older children, apart from their parents when they entered the country. This was the family separation policy that was piloted in 2017 and became official government policy in 2018. The purpose of this intentional cruelty against babies and toddlers and children was to deter future immigrants, asylum seekers from coming to the United States, a policy that was clearly in violation of the U.S. Constitution and domestic and international law. And and it shouldn't be happening. It really should not be happening. This what you're saying is that they were, they were separate. The reason they were separated from their parents, these infants, uh, uh, was... So to send a message to those that might be considering seeking uh, to come to the United, United States, to send a message that you're, if you do this, your children are going to be subject to, to these issues and they're going to be taken away in an in a effort to dissuade people from trying to come to the United States. Exactly. This was done in the name of deterrence. We will rip your child away from you and you will perhaps never see your child again because we, the United States government, will not even keep records of which babies belong to which parents. The fact that the administration at the very highest levels designed and implemented this policy without 
keeping records of which children belong to which parents is criminal. And the fact that records weren't maintained has been confirmed by multiple federal watchdog agencies, including those based at the Department of Homeland Security and the Department of Justice. And a federal court judge in California has made the same finding that as this policy, as this unimaginably cruel policy was rolled out, those in charge didn't even bother to track which kids belong to which parents. Whereas for immigrants coming into the United States, our government has extensive procedures for documenting and inventorying property. So now we can find out where the keys are that an immigrant came in with, but we might not be able to find out which kid the immigrant came in with. I see. This is why there are hundreds of families where the children, more than 500 children still do not know where their parents are. Their parents cannot be located three years later. Hmm. Now, we have a new administration now. Is there, are you seeing any changes in how uh, we, we uh, deal with these issues at the border, even in the short time that we've had a new administration? This administration is taking proactive steps to bring the United States immigration system back into compliance with both domestic and international law. One of the important initiatives that the Biden administration has taken up is an executive order that has set up a task force that focuses on trying to reunite the separated families. That task force has a number of missions, First and foremost, the goal is to reunite those 500 plus children with their parents. A second goal is to figure out how to make sure the United States government never does this again. A third goal is to try and figure out meaningful redress and supports for these families that are still experiencing devastating trauma years later as a result of what the Trump administration did, I'll say that our clinic currently represents children in the United States who, whose parents were ripped apart from them in 2017. Four years later, those children have not seen their parents once. The parents have been deported to countries in Central America, and they have no hope right now of ever physically reuniting with their parents again. Now, what you said there's 500 children that have been separated from their parents um, for uh, as many as four years. Um, were they, are they all uh, spread out uh, around the country or how, how are they, where are they kept? Right. So let me, let me be clear. I'm sorry if I misspoke. So in total, there have been more than 6,000 families who were ripped apart, parent-child units ripped apart at our borders right. in the name of the family separation policy. Most of those families have been reunited. For about 500 of those kids, they are in the United States, most of them living with family members in the United States, but their parents have not yet been located. I see. So there are groups on the ground um, in Central America who are trying to locate these parents. And there are massive efforts underway in an effort to try and track down these parents, but they haven't yet been 
and found. So you're saying you're seeing improvement in the procedures under the new uh, Biden administration. Uh, can we expect to see any changes in the law in the in the upcoming uh, you know congressional session uh, that might uh, attempt to address some of these issues that we're seeing? That's the big question. That's the question that's on everyone's mind who follows immigration issues. So on the very first day after the president took office, President Biden introduced and promoted legislation that would create a path to citizenship for the 10 to 11 million undocumented people who are in the United States who meet certain eligibility requirements. And the big question is, will there be any movement in the Senate, in the House, on that bill? And can we have comprehensive immigration reform? You know, our nation needs comprehensive immigration reform. It is not a sustainable way for our nation to be when there are so many people who are undocumented, who are living in the shadows, when so many people who contribute to our communities and economies are at the cusp of deportation. Let's think about some of the people who have made enormous sacrifices during the global pandemic to keep our lives comfortable, right? So there are the dreamers, a large portion of whom are involved in the medical profession. There are those who are undocumented and working in the fields and the farms to keep our food supply going. There are those who are undocumented who are keeping our meat packing factories open during the global pandemic. There are the essential frontline workers who are working in grocery stores and other parts of the economy to make sure that things keep running. Each of these groups of people and many, many others are law-abiding, tax-paying members of our community, and they all deserve a path to citizenship. So I certainly hope that the Biden administration's bill moves forward. Now, you, you mentioned uh, uh, what appears to be a very, a very serious issue uh, earlier in your comments about work you've done regarding uh, forced sterilization of detainees. Um, tell us a little bit about the work you're doing with respect to uh, those women. It is horrifying. I am working with a number of other lawyers and legal services providers to offer representation to women who have been subjected to medical abuse and retaliation while detained at the Irwin County Detention Center in Osceola, Georgia. And what, what yeah, what is it what is it that they were subjected to uh, these women in Osceola, Georgia? They have been subjected to a relentless pattern of non-consensual invasive gynecological procedures, including abdominal surgeries that the women did not consent to, that they had no knowledge of. And until my colleagues and I began to represent them, they did not know what had happened to their bodies. They did not know whether they would ever be able to bear children and I'll talk about one of the women who I'm representing there. Her name is Betty Donga, 
She's in her 30s. She has been deemed mentally incompetent by an immigration judge, meaning that she has limited capacity to make decisions on her own. She was subjected without her consent, without any appropriate procedural safeguards to surgery, to gynecological surgeries that have left her with lasting surgical site infections for months. She never consented to the surgery and nor did dozens and dozens of other women who were detained here. It wasn't until a whistleblower, Don Wooten, filed a whistleblower complaint on September 14th of this year, of 2020, that all of this started coming to light. And what we've learned is that women have been subjected to this type of medical abuse and retaliation for trying to speak out about it, dating as far back as 2018. It's extremely disturbing. Yes, it is. And so th- th- there, there's been a whistleblower who's who's revealed this. Uh, otherwise, uh, many of the individuals uh, may not even know what was done to them, because as you said, it was done without their consent. Um, so there was a, is there a pattern uh, of of this happening to uh, to women that are detained, um, or is it just an isolated incident? What we have seen at the Irwin County Detention Center is not an isolated incident. It is a relentless pattern of medical abuse and retaliation against immigrant women who have been detained there. This is why on December 21st, our clinic, together with the Coalition of Organizations, filed a class action complaint on behalf of all of the women who have been subjected to medical abuse and retaliation at this detention center. It is among the worst abuses by the Trump administration in the area of immigration. And it is another issue on which I hope the Biden administration will take appropriate corrective action. Now, is there any defense or explanation for for why this was done? No, the government, we filed a motion for a temporary restraining order. The government's response brief is due tomorrow. So that will be our first chance to see what the government's position is. During the Trump administration, after we filed the complaint and first motion for a temporary restraining order on November 9th was that these women should be subject to deportations. And in fact, women were being taken to the airport and were about to be put on flights. As a number of these lawsuits piled up, we were filing lawsuits on behalf of these women saying that they must not be deported. Their bodies carry the critical evidence needed for an investigation into the abuses at the Irwin County Detention Center. And the Trump administration was trying to deport these women and silence them and prevent the truth of what happened, what has been happening at the Irwin County Detention Center from ever coming to light. But luckily through the federal litigation, we were able to stop the deportations of these women, um, all the deportations that had been scheduled after November 9th. And we are pressing for a meaningful, thorough investigation into what's happened. I think it's worth mentioning that the Department of Justice, the Department of Homeland Security's Office of the Inspector General, and the FBI have been investigating these issues as well. 
I see. And so, you know, the uh, Department of Justice and the Biden administration now, um, obviously in a, in, in a somewhat uh, awkward position, having to now provide a defense to these uh, actions that occurred uh, under the prior administration, obviously sounds like something that um, certainly the Biden administration wouldn't be supportive of. Quite honestly, sounds like something that uh, uh, I can't think of anyone that would really be supportive of this. Uh, that it should be in any position of uh, of government. So uh, perhaps we'll see uh, a greater investigation as to uh, how this occurred, uh, and perhaps the people that were responsible will be uh, brought to justice. It seems to me, though, in addition to the class action, that there could be potential uh criminal action against uh, some of those that were responsible for uh, enforcing this type of conduct. I think that's right. There should be criminal charges brought against the gynecologist who conducted these procedures, these dozens and dozens and dozens of procedures over the years, but he didn't act alone. He acted within a system of people that knew what was happening, and a system of people who were complicit in letting these abuses take place for years. We have written documentation from women dating as far back as 2018, raising concerns about unnecessary abusive gynecological procedures by this doctor, and no one in the system, no one at ICE, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, no one at the private for-profit prison corporation, LaSalle Corrections, that runs this facility, took any meaningful action to protect these women. Well, Professor... Uh, Laura Mukherjee, I want to thank you for uh, sharing some of your experiences uh, with us here on Miranda Warnings. I want to thank you for the work that you uh, and your Immigrants' Right Clinic does. Uh, obviously, uh, this is uh, terribly compelling uh, work that you're doing, and we greatly appreciate your sharing your time uh, with us uh, about this. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I appreciate it, David. Yeah, so uh, you're welcome. Um, and it's great having you. Uh, we These are obviously very serious uh, topics. Uh, we do have something of a lighthearted feature on Miranda Warnings called Music Book or Movie. If you want to share with us any sort of uh, artistic performance that might be meaningful to you, either related to the work you do or just what helps get you through uh, quarantine. I am a huge fan of Hamilton. Okay. So, uh, the, the play with, uh, with Lin-Manuel Miranda. You yes, enjoyed? exactly. A huge fan that gets me through the quarantine and this difficult work along with running, which is one of my hobbies need the physical outlet for all this stress. So I know you completed a marathon, a New York City marathon a couple years back. Is that correct? Right. At this point, I've now run three. Okay. All New York City or? or all New York City. Elsewhere. So um, how are you doing with the running during quarantine? 
doing my best. Um, ran the last marathon virtually, which was a lot less fun than doing it in person with tens of thousands of people. But I'm still grateful that I got a chance to do it. You ran a virtual marathon? Right. So I ran in Riverside Park instead of doing the 26.2 miles along the traditional marathon route. Oh, great. Good for you. Well, Professor Alora Mukherjee, thank you for being with us on Miranda Warnings, and, and we wish you uh, our best. Stay well. Thank you so much. You too. Since our conversation, the Justice Department has filed papers seeking dismissal of the forced sterilization case. 